Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'm not a Christian anymore. How many of you have heard something like that from someone you love recently? A friend, relative, one of your children, even former mentors or pastors that we looked up to, or something like, I'm in a season of deconstruction. Some of you might be thinking that right now. Deconstruction is a trendy word these days, and it's also a loaded word, so let me explain what I mean when I use it. Broadly speaking, deconstruction is a process by which we question what we know, or at least what we've been taught. And in one sense, deconstruction is something that we do all the time. I remember learning back in high school biology as a freshman a particular model of how the atom works. And we learned it, and we applied it to various homework problems, and uh, we even took tests on it to make sure that we understood it. But as I proceeded through more advanced science classes in high school and then later in college, we eventually learned that the model from freshman biology was inadequate. It doesn't actually work. It had some explanatory power that was helpful for a freshman biology student, but later we learned how to critique it. And eventually, we discarded it altogether for a better model. But the better one was one that we couldn't have handled as freshman biology students. So what we were doing in later science classes was essentially deconstructing an old idea about the atom and replacing it with something more accurate. And we do this kind of thing all the time. It's just part of growing up. We learn, we unlearn, and we relearn. So this process isn't inherently bad. But when we talk about deconstructing our faith, that's a big deal. 
When we're talking about religion, about faith, we're talking about things of ultimate significance. So the stakes, they couldn't be higher. John Mark Comer, he's a pastor from Portland, he points out that there's a good kind of deconstruction of religion. It's something that Jesus and the biblical prophets and the Christian reformers did all the time. They read their Bibles, and this is important. Their starting point was always, uh, was not their culture, but it was always the revealed word of God. They started with their Bibles, they read them, and they, they looked at the practice of the people and religious leaders around them, and they said, well, we have some serious tearing down and rebuilding that we need to do. Take the prophet Jeremiah. God gave Jeremiah a commission or a call to critique the religious leaders of his day and to call the people of Israel, who were God's chosen people that he had chosen to be a blessing to the nations but were failing miserably at it. And Jeremiah was to call them to repentance, back to the faith and practices that they were supposed to be doing all along. And so God calls Jeremiah, and here's part of what he says. See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and plant. Uproot, tear down, destroy, demolish. Jeremiah has some serious deconstructing to do. But, and this is really important, so don't miss it. Notice the last two verbs, build, plant. Jeremiah's call doesn't end with deconstruction. It moves through deconstruction to building and planting. So just like we replaced a helpful model of the atom with a better one, we didn't say, well, the mo- this model of the atom doesn't work, so maybe there's no atom after all. Well, we move to a better model, a truer model. All that to say that deconstruction is meant to be a phase. It's something that you move through, not a place in which you are to settle. We moved to a better model of the atom in high school science, and Jeremiah, he tore down, but he also rebuilt. And today, we're starting a new series called Reconstructing Faith. For the next 14 weeks, we'll be walking through the New Testament letter called Ephesians. And throughout church history, this letter, alongside Romans, is probably the most influential letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. At Christ Community, we believe that this letter has some important things to say to the 21st century church, where where deconstruction is in the air. This letter is a foundation on which to plant and rebuild. So let's jump in. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And let's start in verse 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me point out a few things before we leave this introductory sentence. First, and this may seem really obvious, but it's important, we, we're reading a letter. And when we read a letter, we realize that we're, we're reading someone's mail, Now, if someone sends me a letter or an email or a text message or a TikTok, by the way, I've heard Pastor Warren is a killer TikTok follow, if you need one. But if someone sends me a communication that's intended for me, there's usually all kinds of background and context that's important or that's assumed in that communication. So if if my wife Emily sends me a text like this, it says, "Uh, hey, honey, you did it again, dot, dot, dot. 
I would, prob- I would probably know exactly how to interpret that. Okay, first of all, there's a nickname. Okay, if you drop in someone from another culture or another time period, they might not know what to do with the word honey. Second, there, there's some kind of shared past incident that's assumed. So if you look over my shoulder and see this text, you have no idea what, uh, what she's talking about, but, but hopefully I do, hopefully. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's something that we had just talked about, uh, and that's why she doesn't feel the need to specify. And third, there's this harmless-looking dot, dot, dot at the end. And that, that communicates as much as the words themselves, doesn't it? Because an exclamation point or a smiley face or heart emoji, all those would be good things. But dot, 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 that's not good. It means I know I've screwed up. I've done something bad again. But you can imagine how somebody from a different time or place might not pick up on all those same things. So what's clear to me, what's, what's assumed between me and Emily, wouldn't necessarily be clear to someone else. And so with Ephesians, we're, we're reading an ancient letter. And there's a lot that's assumed here between the author, Paul, and his readers. And a key principle in applying what Paul has to say to us today in a very different cultural context is to first understand what Paul was saying to his original audience. And that principle is going to be really helpful later when we come to some pretty challenging passages in this book. Now, the second thing about this introduction to the letter that I want to point out is this. There are legitimate questions about who the original recipients were. Many of the earliest and best manuscripts do not actually have the words in Ephesus in verse 1. If you have a, a CSB Bible or an NIV Bible with you and you look in your footnotes, you'll see that, uh, that, that those translations actually point that out to you. So there, there are different ideas about who this letter was intended for that go all the way back to the very, very early church. But what, here's what almost everyone agrees on today. This letter was probably a circular letter that was intended for a wide audience in what is today the western part of the country of Turkey. So in Ephesus was the largest city in that region. You can see it there right along the coast of the Aegean Sea, right across from, uh, from Greece. Probably a quarter of a million people lived in Ephesus at this time, which was massive for that time period. It made it one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. And today you can travel to Ephesus and see the ruins of what was once really an incredible ancient city. And the book of Acts tells us that Paul spent a significant amount of time in Ephesus. It makes sense that Paul would have written to the house churches that were there. And we know from elsewhere that Paul expected at least some of his letters to circulate among regional churches. So most likely, Paul sent this letter originally to the churches in Ephesus but intended it to circulate more broadly within that region. What that means is that Ephesians is probably the least occasional of all of Paul's letters. Because Paul is not writing, like he does so often elsewhere, to one specific house church or one specific city. He's not trying to answer uh, one church's specific questions or resolve specific problems as, as he does in many other letters. He's written a more general letter here for a more general audience, and that is good for us because Paul is going to lay a foundational message here 
It's a message for a broad audience, many of whom Paul has probably never met. And that's one of the things that has made Ephesians so influential over the last 2,000 years. When Paul thought, what are the things that I want everyone to know? This is the letter that he wrote. This is a letter on which to build a foundation for reconstructing faith. And the way that Paul starts building that foundation is what he explores next in verses 3 to 14. And what I think those verses boil down to is this. It all starts with God. It all starts with God. If we're going to reconstruct, to build something that will stand the test of time and weather all of life's storms, it all starts with God. That's the big idea today. Now in Greek, verses 3 through 14 are actually one long sentence, 202 words. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. In 202 words, Paul covers an incredible amount of ground. There are so many different things that we could talk about this morning. We don't have time to cover everything. But in this opening section, Paul is introducing uh, some of the main themes that he's going to develop more fully later on in the letter. So let's take a look at a few. One of the things that stands out about this section when we're building a foundation for reconstruction is this. It's, it's all about God's plan. Look at the different ways that Paul conveys this idea. Just listen for the words chose, predestined, purpose, and plan. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 5, he predestined us according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 10, he has a plan for the fullness of time. Verse 11, he, we are predestined according to his purpose. It's all about God's plan. This plan was set in motion from the foundation of the world, according to verse 4, and it stands until the fullness of time, verse 10. Nothing catches God by surprise. Now, there's a loaded religious word in there that Paul uses a couple of times, predestined. If you've been around church for a long time, you've probably heard that there are big debates about what exactly that word means. And faithful Christians come to different conclusions on this. But broadly, they fall into two main camps. And it, but here's what both sides agree on. That's what I want to focus on. God has predestined or chosen that he would have a group of people who would be his, who love him and reflect his loving character into the world. This was true all the way back to Abraham when God chose him and his family to be his people and that he would be their God. And the debate today really centers around did God choose Jim and not Bill, Susie and not Sally? Can we push this all the way to the individual level or is it only a corporate idea? And my own conviction for what it's worth is that, you know, based on my own study, is that predestination or sometimes I hear the word election, it's, it's a corporate idea. But I have great respect for people who disagree with me, including, I'm sure, other pastors on staff at Christ Community, which, by the way, is one of the things I love about our church. We don't have to agree on every theological detail in order to work together on the mission that God has called us to. But again, both sides of this debate, they agree that God has always planned to have a people. And what might be surprising to some, especially some of Paul's original readers, was that this plan from the foundation of the world always included both Jews and Gentiles. 
Look at what he says in verses 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now at this point in the letter, this is only implied, but it's going to become explicit later. God's plan, it's news for all people. This will become a major theme starting in the second half of chapter 2, and we'll really dig into it later in the series. But, but Paul hints at it now. And Paul is a Jewish man, and he's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. And he includes them when he says that God chose us to be holy and blameless. And holiness and blamelessness are big, important ideas in the Old Testament. That's what Israel was meant to be. So this is the ideal for God's people, holy and blameless. And Paul says that's not just for ethnic Jews. We, Jews and Gentiles, are to be God's holy and blameless people. And Paul is saying that's been the plan since before the foundation of the world. It's not that Israel was plan A and they failed, and so God moved on to plan B, the Gentiles. No, Jews and Gentiles together as the people of God was always God's plan. And that actually should have been clear to anyone who was reading the Old Testament. But we're people and we're slow learners, and too often our cultural preferences and prejudices get in the way. And this was a huge problem in the early church. The apostles who walked with and talked with and learned directly from Jesus seemed surprised in the book of Acts that God would include Gentiles in his plan. In Galatians, Paul records that he had to confront Peter who was probably the closest disciple to Jesus. He had to confront Peter about his prejudice toward the Gentiles. Even Peter had to be reminded that it's news for all people and not just his people. And we need to be reminded of it too. Most of us aren't worried about the Jew-Gentile controversy, but we're still pretty good at dividing ourselves into tribes, aren't we? Whether it's race or class, generation, political party, level of education, what country you live in, what country you were born in, and on and on. We're really good at sizing people up and categorizing. Are you one of them or one of us? And once we decide that you're one of them, we start to wonder whether you're a real Christian. The good news is good news for all people, not just my people. But agreeing with that statement, that's the easy part. Living it out is the hard part. One of Paul's favorite phrases across all of his letters is just two words, in Christ. Most scholar, many scholars today will call this the heart of Paul's theology, in Christ. It's, it's all over Paul's letters. And it's used most frequently here in Ephesians, and it's particularly frequent in this passage. Uh, in, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, those phrases occur 11 times in just this one sentence. We often talk about having Christ in us. When I, when I was young, I prayed a prayer to invite Jesus into my heart. And the Bible does convey that idea, that Christ indwells believers through the Holy Spirit. But far more common in the Bible is the idea that we are in Him. And the implications of us being in Him are huge for how we relate to one another. Because I can't just have Jesus in me over here and you have Jesus in you over there and we can keep our distance. 
Now, if we're in Christ together, then we have to figure out how to make that work. And we, we might have big differences that we need to work out. And Paul will use the metaphor uh, that we are a part of Christ's body in chapter 4 to make this same point. A body functions best when its parts are working together, not fighting against itself. Or fighting for my people over against your people. So how do we do that? It seems daunting to me. How do we get along, much less become holy and blameless? That's where Paul goes next. His answer is that it's all God's grace. If this plan is going to work, God's going to have to do something. If we're going to be able to get along with each other, then God's going to have to do something. If we're going to be holy and blameless, then God's going to have to do something. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So let's start here with the phrase, redemption through his blood. Redemption is an economic term. In the Bible, redemption refers to paying a price, either to rescue someone from slavery, out of slavery who had uh, sold themselves into slavery to pay for a debt, or to repurchase land that had been sold, really probably for the same purpose of paying off debts. So in either case, there's a cost, and it's, it's paid on behalf of someone else. It's paid by someone who can afford to pay the price for the benefit of one who cannot pay it. And here we see that Jesus pays the price of his blood for our benefit, forgiveness of our trespasses. This is the fundamental element of the good news, that Jesus pays the penalty in place of ours for the forgiveness of sins. But there's even more than that. God doesn't stop at forgiving our sins. And God could have stopped at forgiving our sins. A judge can say to me, even though I know you're guilty, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to declare you innocent and clear your record. He can do all of those things. But that doesn't mean I have any kind of relationship with the judge. But this judge, the God of the universe, he says, not only do I forgive you, not only do I clear your record and consider you holy and blameless, but I want you to be part of my family. Look again at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are part of God's family. When is the last time that you reflected on the wonder of that reality? Now, this probably seems strange to us, but in the ancient Roman world, it wasn't children who were most commonly adopted. It was adults. A wealthy benefactor would take an adult from a lower social status and elevate them to a, a higher status by adopting them into their family. This is a, a highly stratified society, uh, but the, the, the benefactor would, would do that, would, would raise them up to a higher status. And being part of this new family meant sharing in the privileges of the higher social status and, and also being a part of the inheritance. And that's why the language of sonship is important here. In the ancient world, a very different culture from our own, the inheritance was passed down through sons, not daughters. 
And so what Paul is saying is that anyone who is in Christ, male and female, now has the status of a son. It's something that really mattered in the ancient world. Whether you are a man or a woman, a Jew or a Gentile, slave or free, you who are in Christ are now elevated to the highest status imaginable, that of sons of the God of the universe. And as such, we share in the inheritance of his son. In verse 11, Paul writes that we have already obtained our inheritance, at least to a certain extent. Our status is secure. God has established our position as heirs, and no one is going to take it away because it's all about God's grace. In fact, Paul says, if you are in Christ, then the deal is already sealed. It's guaranteed. And you know it because you already have the seal, the guarantee. Jump down to verses 13 to 14 with me. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When you heard the gospel, and when you put your trust in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. This probably requires an entire sermon on its own, and even then we'd, we'd struggle to fully comprehend it. When we place our trust in Jesus, we are indwelled by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who empowers and equips us for Christ-like living and service. If your life looks different now than it did before you placed your faith in Christ, that is evidence that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you're growing in Christ-likeness, that's evidence that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it's also a foretaste What you have now is a glimpse of the fullness of the inheritance that's coming. So God's plan, it's it's good news for all people. It's grace that forgives sin and adopts us into God's family. And there's even more. It, It actually gets even better. Because God's plan is about more than just people. Look at what Paul says in verses 9 to 10. Paul says that God is making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is God's purpose? It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, all things, things in heaven and things on earth. The scope of God's plan is breathtaking. God is after everything. In verse 4, Paul said that God's plan was from the foundation of the world, and here it extends all the way into eternity. So all time is covered by God's plan. And so is all space. God's plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There is nothing in all of creation that's not touched in some way by God's plan. God is out to fix our relationship with God. He's out to fix our relationships with each other, and he's even out to fix our relationship with creation. In Romans chapter 8, Paul presents a picture of creation itself longing for redemption. And it's longing because remember the scope of the fall all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 was that it affected everything in creation. God cursed the ground and that was a consequence of human rebellion. And here we see that God is out to reverse that curse as well, not, not by destroying creation, but by uniting it, renewing it, 
redeeming it, and setting it under the stewardship of a redeemed people. God is after everything. One of the beautiful things about the local church is that God puts different things on our hearts, different issues in our world that he's calling us to partner with him in bringing redemption and new life. Whether it's caring for vulnerable children through adoption or foster care, or walking with vulnerable women through a crisis pregnancy, or volunteering with one of our incredible outreach partners, or caring for the environment, or participating in political advocacy around issues of injustice, even just learning the names of the kids that run around your neighborhood and helping them feel known and loved. And of course, the work that you do every day is a part of God's redemptive process and is an act of worship to his glory. Because God is after all of it, everything. And he's calling us into all of those spaces to participate with him in his work of redemption and renewal. And it's all going to bring him glory as his new life and love and restoration move into all the broken spaces around us, it's going to bring him glory. It's all for his glory. This idea permeates the passage. Listen, listen to uh, the different language around uh, praise and glory and worship. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, he says that we might be to the praise of his glory. And the final words in verse 14, he says to the praise of his glory. As God works, works out his plan in the world, it's all to the praise of his glory. Because when our sins have been forgiven, no longer held against us, we can't help but praise the one who paid for our redemption with his blood. When we experience the power of a life changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can't help but praise the one who sent him. When we experience the beauty of the body of Christ with all of its incredible diversity, we can't help but praise the one who gave it unity. And when we see new life spreading into all the broken places, into broken families and communities and nations and workplaces and schools, we can't help but praise the source of that new life. When we experience the joy of our adoption and an intimate relationship with God, our Father, we can't help but praise the one who adopted us. Even now, when we are in Christ, our Father in heaven looks at us and he doesn't see problems to solve or failures to put up with. He sees sons and daughters who of all that he has done and is doing and will do are his highest glory. He sees us through Jesus as the most wonderful thing he's ever done. Let's praise him now. God, we give you praise this morning. Thank you for being a firm foundation on which to construct or reconstruct our faith. Thank you for your plan all the way back to the foundation of the world to redeem and rescue a people for yourself. Though we are prone to wander, prone to walk away, prone to try doing life our way instead of yours, you pursue us and you welcome us home and you declare that we are your sons and daughters. Help us to rest secure in that status. Help us to pursue you more and more and give us a vision for your purposes as we participate with you in all that you are doing to, in our broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.